Hi everyone, this is the podcast of the Baldi Center for Law and Social Policy produced at the University at Buffalo. I am your host and producer, Azalia Mungrantia. This episode, I have Jennifer Gaynor on the phone with me. Jennifer is a historian of maritime Southeast Asia in the world and is currently a research fellow at the Baldi Center for Law and Social Policy. She is also the author of Intertidal History in Island Southeast Asia, Submerged Genealogy, and The Legacy of Coastal Capture, which is such a fascinating read, particularly for me as an Indonesian. Jennifer, how did you end up in Indonesia and meet with the Sama people? As an undergraduate at Wesleyan University, I had been focused on East Asia and had studied Japanese language for years. And after my undergraduate years, I, I did a, a project through the Thomas J. Watson Foundation. They gave me money to go and live in villages of, of women abalone divers. And so I've always been attracted to the waters, uh, the seas especially. And, um, and so I went off to Japan to do this project about women abalone divers who were portrayed in Japanese folktales as these strong, self-confident women who samurai could not, you know, force to marry them. <laughs> so off I went, but the money I had from the Watson Foundation uh, wasn't enough to stay in Japan for a year. So they said, just be true to the spirit of your project and do something else. And I looked around and uh, kind of landed on Indonesia and got pulled into friendships there uh, with local people. and. They guided me to a friend of theirs uh, who suggested I go work in Bugis villages. And in Sulawesi, women really hold the power there, but women don't go on Bugis boats. So I wasn't interested in that because I like being on the boats. So uh, they said, well, you could go live with the, the, the Baju people, they said. And, and so I said, oh, who are they? They said, oh, lack of fresh water, fish head soup. Um, so I, I did that and I, I went to Southeast Sulawesi and um, and was going around looking for the Baju people as I'd been told and, and I had the word wrong and people looked at me like I was positively nuts because I was telling people I'm looking for the shirt people. <laughs> the shirt people. So they said, oh, Bajo. <laughs> and who I now uh, mostly call Sama people. Um, because that's what they call themselves. And it's become more commonplace to call Baju people Sama, even in Indonesian uh, and certainly in English since then. So that's how I got started <laughs> living in Sama villages. I made, I made contact with, I made friends and friends connected me with relatives who connected me with other relatives and kind of just ramified through my dissertation that way later. Your book talks about Hajilawi and her capture. Can you explain to our listeners why was Hajilawi captured by a Bugis commander's henchman during the 1950s? Capture became a really important uh, part of my research and has led me in all kinds of wonderful new directions, but it hadn't originally been <laughs> part of my research, but it turned up both in the 1950s uh, material I was researching related to Sama involvement or uh, sort of uh, uh, trying not to get involved in the DITII, the Darul Islam Tentari Islam Indonesia rebellion, which is um, the abode of Islam and the Indonesian Islamic army in the 1950s. So 
So capture became uh, important because of Hajalawi's story, how she was captured. Um, and specifically, she was targeted because she was a member of a, a, a high status family, a high status Sama family. So they had connections uh, in trade around the archipelago and skills with boats. Uh, so that was very valuable for the movement. Like they could uh, make a kind of formal marriage uh, with her, her and her family between the kin groups and uh, try to exploit that to get more Sama or Bajo people to join this movement. Capture also turned up in my research on this same location on Tiwaro in the early modern period. And it was a very important part of um, this 1655, there were two different battles or times in which the, the, the Tiwaro area uh, was targeted by the Dutch East India Company, the VOC. And in 1655, uh, there were 300 women and children who were captured, as well as about 200 men slaughtered. Um, and so, you know, capture played different roles, slightly different in different times. But so I became really curious about what is the role of capture? Are these people just sold into slavery? You know, where did they wind up? Can my understanding of this conflict in the 1950s and capture there help me to understand if it can at all? Uh, what happened, you know, back in the 17th century? So the 17th century stuff, there wasn't like a direct connection. It's not like these 300 women were captured and then married off to allies. I mean, if that had been the case, it would have been very neat and clean and you know, tied up a little bow. But it, so I'm glad it wasn't that, <laughs> that easy. Um, but capture was used uh, both to, um, I mean, for sure, some people wound up uh, sold in slave markets, possibly in Batavia. Uh, others, these these women were uh, and children were first gifted to the opponents in this conflict, the allies of the VOC. From the Dutch point of view or from the VOC point of view, they were gifted in order to sort of keep those allies of the VOC um, satisfied with, you know, doing the work they were, the fighting they were doing. Um, but this kind of capture also brought in more followers, more people, and it deprived uh, their opponents, Makassar, um, a very important sort of group of people, a resource in Tiwo, uh, who they relied on for fighting the VOC and their allies in the Spice Wars. So um, depriving your enemies of their strategic resources, basically, uh, was another reason why people were killed, the men and, and women captured. How did you discover Hajilawi? There was always a kind of fascination that young family members had with the fact that she had been married to a childhood friend and um, regiment commander uh, under Kahar Muzakar, so who led this rebellion in the 50s. And um, so there was a kind of like, oh, this terrible thing happened, but it's kind of cool to the, the younger people because it's like this brush with unusual uh, and exciting past that they could tap into. So I finally got to meet her more than once and talked with her other family members as well. She's part of an extended family, Hadzalawi, um, in this region 
of Southeast Sulawesi. And uh, she was uh, very gracious. At first I went with her nephew, who was a kind of research assistant sometimes with me. And I, I let him conduct some of the interviews because um, he was really interested. And uh, so why not? Yeah, so that's how I, I got to meet her. And um, she went through quite a lot. So with the research you did for your book, how do you see the role of Sama people in the region? Does it give an insight to our understanding of littoral societies in Southeast Asia? So yeah, in some ways, uh, it's still focused on how sea people or maritime relations in which Southeast Asians were, were the mariners, um, part of a wider early modern world where many different people from different parts of the world, but especially Asia, were also mariners. But the Southeast Asians had political relations with each other and at times with South India and with China. So uh, I think that they are part of a key to understanding these kinds of relations between polities are part of those relations, uh, especially before colonialism uh, really had uh, a sort of heavy influence in the region. So I'm exploring ways to <laughs> to write about, about that, some of which draw on literature, some of which draw on archival material and work by other scholars, and also involves law to some degree. I'm interested in these codes, these Southeast Asian codes, very hard to trace their genealogies, you know, where they came from. There are stories about that, but actually to trace the sort of links and how they were produced and what they drew on beforehand. Um, you know, were there Persian precedents? Did this just come out of, you know, Southeast Asian context and practice? Very hard to figure that part out. I mean, I'm not the first person to be interested in this <laughs> by a long shot, but I'm particularly interested in the Code of Malacca and the Amanagapa, which is a Buddhist code of, of maritime law, essentially. They're both basically merchant law, Lex Mercatoria, and they both appear around the same time. And I read Buddhist and Malay, so yes, I'm really looking at them. So, I mean, I actually had started this work for the book. I started uh, looking closely at them and at all the different recensions or, or you know, versions that there are and tracing which ones really uh, exist and which kinds of erroneous references there were in, you know, 18th century European documents and things. And then I cut all that out because it was just like, it was too much of a side story. The book was already so complex. But, you know, Southeast Asianists have been talking about polities rather than states since the 1970s. So it was kind of a natural thing for me to talk about in, interpolity, pre-Westphalian interpolity relations. So, um, so I definitely uh, will be looking forward to making those kinds of lateral connections with other people working on the context out of which these patterns of interaction and then law came. And in this case, it's about Lex Mercatoria. It's like it's an alternative genealogy or part of one of many alternative genealogies for merchant law. Moving forward, how should scholars ethically and critically approach the study of the Sama people and other littoral societies? I think it's so tempting and easy to um, you know, romanticize things about the sea. And I love the sea, but it's so important to cut through 
you know, um, ideological and other forms of BS, it's uh, one really has to have evidence, evidence for claims that one makes. I, I, you know, not to be overly empiricist, but I think that, you know, there's plenty of people who can, who can point to what a maritime region it is. Um, but when you get down to the, the nitty gritty, you know, what are the details and the relationships and how did those come about? And what, you know, what's the substance here? And how do people talk about it and think about it? How does that affect their daily lives? So I think, you know, one has to have context, you know, to, to look at, to look at things. And I think approaching this, I think the, you know, approaching the study of, of sea people and Southeast Asia's literals, um, you know, it's, got to be a combination of really specific case studies because uh, or specific contexts because without the specificity it's hard to learn you know what's really going on and find out those new things that one couldn't just project from one's fantasies right um, but there also has to be big pictures uh, of more than one kind uh, and I think that they have to take into account the environment and they have to take into account um, the importance of the sea in so many ways in the region. That was Jennifer Gaynor, the author of Intertidal History in Island Southeast Asia, Submerged Genealogy and the Legacy of Coastal Capture, published by Cornell University Press. This has been the Baldi Center for Law and Social Policy podcast, produced at the University at Buffalo. Please visit our website, buffalo.edu slash baldicenter, for more episodes and for all social media on Facebook and Twitter at Baldi Center. Until next time, I'm your host and producer, Azalia Mohransyah.